In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, happy 3rd of July. Um, I hope you guys have a good 4th. And it's nice that you are here and not out vacationing on this holiday weekend. So my wife and children are, but I'm here with you, and I'm glad you're here with me. Um, They're having a great time, though. Um, So we'll be in Daniel chapters 1 through 3. Uh, pardon, my voice is a little scratchy. I feel fine, don't worry, but um, hopefully I can get us through this. Some of you are thinking, oh, good. He has a limitation and we'll end early tonight. <laughs> so I'm drinking mint tea to kind of help. So if that's another thing is maybe I'll have to go to the restroom really early tonight. And We'll take care of communion while you're going. Yeah. <laughs> Ding dong, the witch is gone. All right. <laughs> but we will be getting in, G- in Daniel chapter 3. We'll work back to chapter 1. Okay. It is impossible to live as a Christian. That's right. <laughs> because one can only die as a Christian. Does that surprise you? shocking when I first came upon that line, but then I realized that that makes total sense. The Christian life goes against the grain of this world. Biblically speaking, often this world is called Babylon. And so we must learn to die in order to live. Therefore, you can't live the Christian life by living. You live it by dying. Jesus said this in Mark 8, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See what he's saying there? It's impossible to live as a Christian, but one can die as a Christian. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Looking after our own ease and comfort and convenience makes it incompatible to live a life of self-denial and surrender. In Daniel, we are going to see this enacted. Um, I would like to start us in chapter 3 as we look at the three youth. We often know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but that's sort of a, uh, that's giving a nod of the hat to Babylon, because Babylon renamed them to those names. Mm-hmm. Now, I have not recited their Hebrew names well enough to recite them, so I'm going to call them the three. It's D and the three, you know, <laughs> Daniel and the three. So, but we're going to see, we're going to see Daniel, or the three here in um, Daniel chapter three. I want us to see the scene, and then we will look at the book in its context and go back to chapter 1 and work our way up. So chapter 3, Daniel 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon. Babylon has conquered, not quite completely conquered Jerusalem yet, but they have taken over parts of it and they've taken Jerusalem youths and brought them to Babylon. So this is the empire. They're in a pagan land. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. And it says that he made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth, six cubits. And he set it upon the plain of Dura. 
in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and the officials in the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So far, you might notice there's some repetition, exact wording repeated, almost needlessly. Needlessly, You'll notice this trend continues, and it's for a reason. Um, I lost myself. Verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, the Scottish were already around apparently, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And, when, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So bow down or burn up. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, harp, lyre, trigon, harp, um, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, already we've seen a repetition of the leadership and the instruments of music. And this is because it's creating this sense of conformity. That the king has come up and said, I need everybody to do this to show your loyalty to me. And the ease of which it is for us to just follow the crowd. We start going into the marching orders. We start doing what everyone else does. So Daniel makes the language repeat itself. It's conformity. And it's going to keep repeating a couple more times the rest of this chapter. But, but what is going on? What is, why is Nebuchadnezzar setting up this image? Um, we're not exactly told what it looks like. We're not told that it's dedicated to a god of any, any kind of particular sort. It's a new image, so it's not likely that they invented a new god. It seems that probably Nebuchadnezzar was disturbed by the dream he had in chapter 2. Now, you probably know this and remember it from, because it's a well-known section of the Bible. But Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream in which he saw a statue. And the head was of gold, the chest was of silver and the arms, the thighs of bronze, and the, the feet were of iron and clay mixed. And he demanded, you tell me what I dreamed and interpret it. And everyone's like, that's not fair! You gotta tell us the dream at least. He's like, no, you're gonna make stuff up. You gotta tell me the dream and then I'll know that it's true. Well, no one could do it. They're all gonna be executed. Daniel is riled up, or he's rounded up to be executed. And he's like, what's going on? Why are we gonna die? And they're like, well, because the king said this and nobody can do it. And Daniel's like, oh, pff, come on. I can do this. Why didn't anyone ask me? So then he prays. He gets the three together and they pray. And then he sees the dream. And he comes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him the dream. And then he says, this is what it means. You, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. But coming after you are going to be three other empires. So the bronze or the silver represents the Persians and the bronze, the Greeks, and then the iron and clay, the Romans. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like the idea that his kingdom is only one quarter of the history of the world. 
So he wants to make sure that it's gold all the way down. You see what he's doing? So in fear that Babylon will fall, he now makes this image of gold. It's all Babylon or nothing. So you must show that you are loyal to the empire, to Babylon, by bowing down to this. If you don't, then I know that we can't trust you and we must remove you from the kingdom. Because Babylon must live forever. That's the dream he had. So he's determined to make that dream not happen. So then he demands loyalty. That's what we just read. Today, we're watching Babylon set up its golden image. And we're watching the magistrates and the satraps. We call them governors and and. I'm blanking out on our own democracy. Senators and Republicans. Uh, not uh, House of Representatives, is what I'm trying to say. And Democrats and Independents. And um, we're seeing the whole lot of them, right? Uh, there's, there's cultural pressure for people to bow down to certain ideas. So I don't know if you've seen this because we're, we're, we're somewhat secluded here in our mountain um but i was in seal beach this week and um seal beach you know the 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 coastal places are usually quite well they call it progressive we're going forward um there are signs on lawns and windows that say something to this extent some of them change a little bit but they all say something like this in this house we believe that black lives matter love is love Gay rights are civil rights. Women's rights are human rights. And by women's rights, they mean the right to abortion. And transgender women are women. Now, without getting into the nitty-gritty of all that, what culture is doing is it's setting out this creed. This is a secular creed. We believe in this house. And you either completely agree with this creed, or you get cast into the furnace. Now, we don't literally cast people in furnaces, but what we do is we cancel them mm-hmm. in culture. And we say that they no longer have a place here. Um, I mean, I know someone who has a relative, so it's not too far off, <laughs> um, who actually lost their business over something like this. Um, these are things that are happening. And as far as I can tell, the more that our nation gets anxious and is afraid that America may not be eternal, leadership will start to demand conformity toward certain ideals and ideas and those that don't conform some sort of fiery furnace will be your alternative and we see the three here are going to be very bold and not give in to the madness so this is the false image that nebuchadnezzar sets up but what we're going to see is because the three daniel's friends do not bow down and choose rather to be burned up. We're going to see that the false image is upstaged by the true image. Mm-hmm. So here's how it goes. Daniel 3 verse 8. You'll notice, by the way, some of the repetition with the music again. Uh, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, a Chaldean is a Babylonian. Sometimes those are interchangeable. Certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. 
You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, we're even careful to say the right things, right? <laughs> um, the right kind of uh, I gotta stop that. I keep losing my place, man. Uh, shall fall down and worship the golden image. Verse 11. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these wise men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. I am so gracious, I'm giving you a second chance. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. You see some dramatic effect. Flames start coming out. And, and don't miss this. And then he pauses for effect. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, kings and pagan empires believe that they represented the pantheon of gods. So if Nebuchadnezzar says so, the gods are behind him. How then are they going to be delivered by any of the gods that back Nebuchadnezzar? Well, O king, there is the most high God, the God of gods. Forgot to take him into account. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here's what I... Okay, now I'm, this is where I'm sermon. Okay. I, I struggle with... You know, we, we want to pressure people into doing things. This is true. This is, this is what matters. And then someone stands up and says, I'm not going to do it. Then people get really mad. <laughs> if it's true, it's true. What does it matter if people believe it or not? But it's almost as if society knows deep back in the fearful recesses of their hearts that what they're upholding is false. So they need our affirmation lest we expose the emptiness of what we're after. And so Nebuchadnezzar's fury is it's startling because it's as if he knows it's all a sham. He just hates to be exposed. And this is where persecution comes from. It's when the church just simply is the church worshiping the true image of God, Christ. And then the world gets mad because the devil's like, oh, we've been found out, get them. And that's what's happening. So by the way, please, if you truly believe in God and believe he's real, don't get mad or angry or start pressuring other people if they don't believe. Let God be God. Let God be true and every man a liar, right? So let time tell. 
So Nebuchadnezzar's verse 19 was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just in chapter 2, he exalted them and Daniel. Now they're eh, losers, expendable. You didn't hold my creed. He ordered the furnace heated seven more times than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their outer garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, irrationally mad, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, so human lives are expendable to get our agenda out there. Praise God that Christ does not do that. He throws himself into the fire before you or I. Uh, And these three men, they were bound into the burning, fiery furnace. But in verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Then answered and said to the king, it's true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods or the new king james is like the son of god this is the true image nebuchadnezzar set up his false image the three said that's false we're gonna and then in the fiery furnace the true image of god is revealed the son of god We know Colossians 1 verse 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And 2 Corinthians 4 4, the God of this world has been blind, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, Christ who is the image of God. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't see it, but because these three stood up while all went down, he now sees there's a truer image. He can see it. He's no longer blinded because the fire of the believers has shown him the light. So the three youth survive. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come out here and come here. Then they came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks not harmed, and the smell of fire, no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. And yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. And this is the same decree at the beginning of this chapter, slightly reworded. Any people, nation, or language, same three subcategories, people, nation, language, that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Nebuchadnezzar's a rash guy, isn't he? (laughs) And their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. 
But here's the question. How did these three survive Babylon's fire? What was it about them that made them bold enough to stand up when all others bowed down and to be willing to face the furnace? Because I think most of us see stories like this and we're like, oh no, no, no. If there's a way out, I'll take it. And still be saved, of course. I'll take it. How were they able to do this? I think that this is why Daniel chapter 1 starts the way it does. And I want us to now go back to the beginning of the book and look at what are the habits and patterns and, and practices that formed these three young men and Daniel to make them the kind of people who can care less about what everyone else is doing and can welcome the consequences no matter how dreadful. So Daniel chapter 1. Um, so since this is our first message in Daniel, um, I'm going to give you a real quick introduction to this book. Um, it's good stuff in there, like fiery furnaces and lion's dens and prophecies. Um, but Daniel takes place during the Babylonian captivity. So you might remember King David was raised up and God promised an eternal kingdom and his sons will always sit on the throne. But then Solomon comes and the kingdom experienced strain. His sons are, his son is not real wise. And so the kingdom splits. And then from there, both kingdoms gradually go downhill until we're at this point where now we see the Jews in Babylon because they're now being controlled by other kingdoms. So this is about 605 BC at six, uh, at 586. So what is that? Almost 20 years from this point, um, Jerusalem itself will be completely reduced to rubble. Um, this book is a very simple out- outline structure. The first six chapters, half the book, are stories about survival. So you're God's people. You're removed from your land and taken to a pagan land. We're God's people. We live in the midst of a post-Christian society, a secular society. Daniel's question and our question is the same. How does how do the people of God survive in Babylon? How do they live in Babylon without losing their faith? So the first six chapters are stories of survival. The last six chapters, chapter 7 through 12, are visions. This is where Daniel starts to get visions, and they're visions of God's sovereignty. So we can survive because we see what God has revealed to us through his word. We trust that he has control. Now, um, one more outline. Daniel's interesting because it also has a chiastic structure. Some of you nerds remember what that is. I'm not going to give that tonight. Um, homework, go find the chiastic structure. Hint, chapters 4 and 5 are the center of it. Um, but it also has a language outline, which is the only book in the Bible that has a language outline. Do you know what I'm saying? The book itself actually switches languages throughout. Yeah, right? So chapter 1 is Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are Aramaic which would have been the language of the empire, Babylon. And then chapters 8 through 12 go back to Hebrew. So you have this sandwich of languages. Hebrew is book-ending, Aramaic, well, hamburgers, right? Aramaic's the meat in the middle. And the structure of this is really quite genius because it's Daniel in the language of the book is incorporating the story of God's people. We were at our homeland. Then we went into exile, Aramaic. 
but God will bring us back. He will restore us. Hebrew. Or another way to look at it is the Hebrew bookends are God's ways instructing, guiding, protecting us while we meander through the wilderness of the Aramaic Babylonian world. So the book itself has this genius um, composition. Okay, so in chapter one, let's get the context real quick and then we'll see how these young men were so resilient in the face of persecution. Daniel one, verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, he was one of the sons of Josiah, high moment of Israel's history. Jehoiachin, uh, was I, well, if I remember right, he was taken captive to Egypt. Jehoiakim was set up as a Babylonian puppet. And uh, in that year, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. That's a setup. Because chapter 6, we're going to see these vessels from the house of God being used. And it's going to be, a, no, it's chapter 5. In chapter 5, it's going to be a humiliating moment for the king. But something what they would do is they would take the vessels from one temple and put it in, what they would actually have done in Babylon is they would put it in the temple of Marduk, their chief deity. So it's, it's like this, You're, you conquered this nation, that nation, and Jerusalem, and you take the vessels of their gods and you put them into the temple of your god, and what it says is, Marduk now presides over all gods. He's the god of gods. So there's this this uh, tension, this setup here that's going to make Marduk and the gods of Babylon look real bad soon. Verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Fully indoctrinate them to make them full-blooded Babylonians. That's the goal. Interesting, though, it says that it's going to take um, some from the royal family. And literally in the Hebrew, that's talking about the seed of the kingdom. The seed of the kingdom. These are the lineage of David. Now, the seed of the kingdom's interesting language because we know in Genesis 3, verse 15, that God said that there would be a battle between seeds. The seed of the woman, realized in God's people, will have contention against the seed of the serpent. And so here's Babylon taking the seed of the kingdom, and it's as if Babylon thinks, ha, we have squashed God's plans. He's dead. It's over. Look out, though. I mean... The serpent, yeah, he bruises the heel of the seed of the woman, but that heel then crushes the head of the serpent. And that's part of what Daniel's prophecy is about, is that Babylon thinks it's forever. The golden image is, let us be forever, but it's going to be crushed. Um, Verse 5. Then the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Ooh, eating the king's food now. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. In our language, fully baptized members of the Chaldean kingdom. (laughs) That's what he's doing here. Among these were Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names to Daniel, Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azrael, or Azariah he called Abednego. Okay, so that's the setting. They're in a foreign place, foreign gods, foreign money, foreign music, foreign language, foreign clothing, foreign food. You go down the list. You are a fish out. You're a tourist without tourism being a thing. It's terrifying. It's terrible. No one knows a lick of your language. No one cares about your language. You're a Jew. Like you're just you're out of you're a fish out of water. Now you're being thrust this this foreign food. You're being thrust this language, their literature, this names put upon you. You're completely humiliated. You don't even know who you are anymore. But in verse eight, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. In the midst of all of this. Daniel resolves. He has a purpose in the midst of this. And this resolve is what will give him the courage to face the lion's den in chapter 6 and the three youths to face the fiery furnace in chapter 3. They were not just inherently courageous, and some of us aren't. They didn't just walk through life and, oh, there's an option? Well, I'll choose the hard option. That never happens, brothers and sisters. Life does not happen by default, at least not the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life. You can only die the Christian life or die as a Christian. They resolved that they would create distance between them and the Babylonian agenda so that through these efforts of self-denial and abstaining from Babylonian ways, they would have the courage, they'd be working up the strength. If you have chosen to deny yourself over and over, then the fiery furnace is just the capstone of many decisions that preceded it. They did not live accidentally. And I fear... For many in the church, notice my eyes are closed because I'm not sure who I'm looking at. (laughs) I fear for many in the church because we kind of just think we become like Christ accidentally. We pray once in a while and it's just going to happen, right? I'm a Christian. You'll be a Babylonian if that's your strategy. Daniel resolves. And the three with him, you see in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the eunuchs. The eunuchs basically like, uh, but if I don't feed you the king's food, I'm going to get in trouble. The king's going to realize you look different than the others. And he's like, what is this? Off with your head or rip him limb from limb because, and throw him in the fire while you're at it, because he did not feed them what he was supposed to feed them. Um, so Daniel and the eunuch chat. And Daniel's like, okay, just a small little test. Ten days. Let us eat vegetables and water for ten days. And if we look terrible, you can put us back on the king's program. Just 10 days. And the eunuch's like, well, okay, what do I have to lose? So they strike this deal. So verse 14, he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Daniel, you win. Here you go. It's like, you're making me look real good here. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. So God helped them through all the lessons. Daniel had understanding and all vision and dreams. And at the end of the time when the kings, at the end of the three years, 
When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, all proud of his product. (laughs) And the king spoke with them, interviewed them, tested them, it would seem. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Who's King Cyrus? He's the first king of the empire that takes down Babylon. Here we have a foreshadow. Babylon's going to live for a very short while. So don't put your hopes in it. So they resolve to not defile themselves with king's food and drink. What we call this is a lost word in the church today. Not completely lost upon all of us, but in general, we don't talk about holiness anymore. And this is what they resolve. They resolve to be holy. I know the word holy is not in the text, but what they're doing is what holiness looks like. Holiness is not meant to give us images of angelic people with halos around their head and they're spotlessly white. Like Holiness might lead you there one day. But actually, the practice of holiness is to set yourself apart. It's to be called out in order to serve a different purpose. That's what holiness is. And so Daniel and the three choose to set themselves apart from the Babylonian agenda. And that's their act of holiness. They resolve holiness to our God. Being set apart for his purposes is what will help us survive in this Babylonian exile. But I also want you to notice, because it's real quick for people to say, yeah, holiness, the church should just hide from culture. The church has nothing to do with Babylon. But wait a minute here. Holiness is separation, but it is not isolation. They separate themselves from the king's food. But you read with me in verse 17 to 20 that Daniel and the three learned the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And when they were tested, they knew the answers. They were not ignorant and isolated. They learned what they needed to learn. They knew the culture, but they set themselves apart from it. Or to put it another way, holiness is denouncing Babylon, but it is not dismissing Babylon. Now, let me make this really clear. For It's an example that's really clear here. Um, the LGBTQ community. Many Christians want to dismiss it. We can denounce it, but we do not dismiss these people. They're not dismissible. But we often say, ah, no, they don't exist. Or we don't talk to them. Or we don't talk about it. Okay, denounce the creed of the secular age, but don't dismiss it. We should befriend. We should know the people that God's put in our lives, right, in this way. Um, Set apart is, or being holy is being set apart without being set off and angry, like King Nebuchadnezzar. So don't get set off, like, but we're holy and they're doing all this and ah, I hate everything that's going on. Okay, I I understand our feelings, but let's not vent the anger at innocent people scrolling on social media or walking in the grocery store if you're in line with someone heaven forbid that they're stuck with a christian who's ranting and railing of their all their anger about the world lord have mercy um that's what the holiness looks like so they're set apart but they are very much there 
Jesus said in John 17, this is his prayer. He said, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then he said, it's my word that sanctifies them. Sanctify is the same Greek word for holy in the New Testament. It's that which makes them holy. So holiness is not like this software update that happens in the background. You go to bed and your phone updates itself. That's how we think holiness works. It's not how it works. I don't just cruise through life and holiness is like updating me right now. (laughs) We must be intentional about holiness. We must resolve. And it looks like this is how Daniel did it. First, he sought personal discipline. He disciplined himself. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, I discipline my body that I be not disqualified from the race. Daniel purposed to discipline himself by abstaining from what probably would have been fine to eat the food, but he just didn't want to become a Babylonian. So he disciplined himself. I will eat vegetables instead. That's a sacrifice. Because he's got the best food in the world coming from the empire's table. Then second, so his personal discipline, but don't miss this. It was also communal discipleship. Daniel didn't do this alone. The iron hero, the western cowboy, gunslinging Gene Autry, just doing it all himself. Um, He included the three with him. They did this together. So personal disciplines work best toward our holiness when they're done with and alongside each other. Okay. And then the result of this holiness is wholeness. They were more beautiful, fatter, it says in the ESV. (laughs) They're more plump than any of the others. (laughs) Idea here, because obviously a vegetable diet would not literally plump you, but um, the idea is that they are more whole. They are more whole than people that are just doing the Babylonian thing. So here's why this is important, though. Daniel's resolve is so important because if we don't resolve to be holy, then we will dissolve in conformity. That's what will happen. It's not a middle option. We resolve toward holiness or we dissolve in conformity. And that's because Babylon is not neutral either. Our world wants you. First Peter 5, I want you for Babylon. First uh, Peter 5 um, says that the devil prowls, he seeks someone to devour. Babylon is attacking us, the spirit of Babylon attacks us in our world, like it does here, in two ways. You notice what Babylon did to the youths? First, Babylon wants to feed us. Babylon wants to feed us. Because it wants to teach Dan, D, and the three, it wants to teach them what a Babylonian desires. It wants to make their appetite a Babylonian appetite. So this is what you eat. The world does this to us every single day. And I've apologized over and over in the past about, I'm so sorry that my messages are short as 40 minutes and sometimes 60 minutes. I'm so sorry about that. I quit sorry being sorry for that because i just realized like how many of us might watch fox news for a whole hour every night so i'm sorry i'm not sorry at all i know i'm on a roll man we started late too so we gotta we gotta really speed this up some of you are like fireworks 
I don't know what more you need. This is fire right here. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I just need you to know, by the way, because you guys are making me sob here now. <laughs> um, I, at the pastor's conference, I was bragging about you guys, just so you know. Everyone's like, what is it like in Twin Peaks? I'm like, well, I mean, it's super small. Like, we are not a big church. We're nothing to brag about, like, in that respect. But I'm like, but I have the most amazing people. Aww. It's the most amazing church. So, that's nah, an accident. <laughs> that's the best just happens to be. Um, okay. Um, so, oh uh, yeah, Babylon wants to feed us. So here's how this works in our lives. Everything we consume wants to wants to teach us to desire something. I don't know if you realize this, but so um, um, I I worked with um, there's a guy. You guys, some of you guys might remember Dane Bundy. He's been here a little bit. He does this podcast um, with movies, and he has, he's asked me to do a few of them. And um, I encourage him to incorporate an extra question into what he discusses when he discusses film with his students and with people. And it is, what does this film want me to desire? Because everything that's produced for our consumption is aimed at getting us to want something. And so whether this is books, music, film, advertisements, sports, news, and the media in general, they all want us to desire something. And it's not an accident, isn't it, that our screens, which we spend more time with than our pastors or each other or the scriptures or prayer, all put together, just saying, um, our screens disciple us. They disciple us. And it's really freaky and interesting that the things we um, we say the the content that's given to us we call that consuming, mm-hmm. and then the content that's given to us you call that a feed. Mm-hmm. Babylon wants to feed us. Are we eating? Mm-hmm. So this is why it's important to resolve because we can't get away from that, but we can resolve to be holy in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. Second, Babylon names us. Babylon wants to name us. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is not their God-given name. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means God helps. They're all God-centric, God-oriented names. So when somebody asks, who are you? They wouldn't say, well, I'm a dentist or I'm a chiropractor or I'm a drummer. I am helped by God. I am graced by God. I am judged by God. God was at the core of their identity. So what Babylon wants to do is strip this identity and give them a new identity. And and brothers and sisters, we have succumbed to this. Because sometimes when we're not aware, we just become Babylonians. And we do this when we talk with each other, when we talk about our identities, we name ourselves after the things we do. Question. Am I a pastor? Am I a minister who has a relationship with God? Or am I a relationship with God who has a ministry? Which am I at the core I need to be someone who has a relationship with God. That's what I am. And I remember one pastor sharing, um, one of the pastors at Costa Mesa was sharing how heartbroken he was during COVID when churches shut down. A lot of pastors were saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know who I am anymore. 
And this pastor was saying it broke his heart because it, it exposed a brokenness within the Christians that we don't know who we are without what we're doing. COVID should be, if, if the world shuts down again, we should say, cool, I don't have to do those things, and I get to be a relationship with God unhindered. Amen. And even pastors weren't acknowledging that. So that shows you where we are. Um, we don't actually know what these Babylonian names mean. Some people give guesses. But the names themselves don't actually correspond to any Babylonian names. And the belief is that Daniel corrupted the names when he wrote them down in protest. I love that. So even though the names show up later, Daniel's writing those names, it's a protest. It's like, I don't know how to spell your names. <laughs> um, yeah, but okay, so um, we need to resist the Babylonian name by recognizing that it's soul first, role second. Our Babylonian role is not who we are. It's simply what we're doing. So what we love directs how we live and we angle our lives toward our loves. That's the idea. The name tells you how to live. The food tells you what to love. What you love will always determine how you live. Love, desire, want is what drives our decisions and our behavior. We must first choose to love the kingdom of God, and then our lives will conform to the kingdom of God. We must not love Babylon. So um, let's, let's bring this to, um, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up here. How do we, so how do we survive Babylon? Well, we see that Daniel resolves, the three resolve that they will not eat Babylon's food or take Babylon's names. Um, Because you're facing the furnace is not one sudden, spontaneous, courageous act. It isn't. In those moments, you will do what you've trained yourself to do. If you continually live for yourself, you will hesitate to help somebody Who's about to die if it, if it endangers you? Because you've trained yourself to seek protection. And that's going to be a hard decision for you. But if you continually give your life for other people, it is not a question of what you'll do in that sin- instance. Because it's become your second nature to give yourself away. This is what Daniel and the three do. For three years, they are denying themselves. They're fasting from the Babylonian fair. So when the furnace comes... They're not like, oh, king, please. Uh, just maybe you can leave, like, w- like, just allow us to be an exception. There's no pleading. They're full on bold before the king. Like, <laughs> we haven't eaten your food for like years. You think this is going to be a big deal? We're going to become God's food in that furnace. So what's up? <laughs> so what we do is instead we face the furnace through a thousand small choices to avoid Babylon's food and names. That's how we avoid the furnace. It's, it's the little choices, the thousand tiny choices. N.T. Wright wrote a really interesting book called After You Believe. It's a question I think most evangelicals don't know how to answer is what do we do now that we're saved? Um, and in that, he addresses character and virtue. And this is what he says. He says that virtue is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right but which doesn't come naturally to us. And then, on the thousand and first time, when it really matters, they find that they do what's required automatically. So, D and three's resolve is that they would do those things which are hard for them a thousand times, 
so that on that 1,001st time, what wasn't natural is now natural. It comes naturally for them. Let me put this in one other way. If you and I cannot fast Babylon's food, how will we ever fe- uh, how will we ever face Babylon's flames? Mm-hmm. If you can't fast the food, how are you going to fast the flames? The small things are what add up to the big things. The Orthodox Church has this hymn about the three youth here and Daniel, and this is what they say in their hymn. They say, What quenched the fire? What stopped the mouths of the wild beasts? It was fasting that delivered the children from the furnace and Daniel the prophet from the jaw of the lions. Brethren, let us also fast like them. Fasting is what will give us backbone against the Babylonian culture. Um, Now, obviously, this doesn't have to just be food. There's many ways the world's feeding us. But fasting food is the most practical starting place because it's tangible. It's tangible. You can say, I'm going to fast from media. And it's like, what do you mean by that? So you're never going to turn on the television. You're never going to hear what's the news. You're never going to turn on music. Like, why do you, what do you mean by that? Because you're going to let, you can let media creep come in real easy. It's a lot easier just to close your mouth and not let food in. It's tangible. Um, but here's what fasting is. Fasting is one of those small, those thousands of small choices we make. It's not epic. It's not glorious. You don't feel like you're changing the world when you fast, but you're making one of those thousand choices that will one day change a situation. Fasting is not a means of earning God's love. It's not a means of earning God's love. He's not going to be like, congratulations, Tyler. You finally got your fast together. I'm going to pour grace upon you now. It's not a means of earning his love. But what fasting is, is it's a counterformation against what Babylon loves. So fasting doesn't acquire God's love. It resists Babylon's love so that we don't love what they love. Fasting rallies the body, the heart, the mind in personal protest against Babylon. You want to protest against what's going on? Get your body, heart, and mind on the same page and say, I'm going to deny myself. Self Fasting is a self-denial. It's practicing little deaths until we face the big death. Fasting creates mindfulness about what we consume and how it forms our love. So even when I choose to eat differently, let's say I'm just going to do veggies, right? We'll say you're going to do that. Because fasting isn't always this iron clad, like, I eat nothing. Um, That can actually make you proud. Fasting can simply be, I'm going to cut off meat or other rich fare that I love, right? Because all it does is by this little decision, you must now rally mind, body, heart in every moment. You're at a barbecue. You're like, oh, man, I I committed a fast today. I'm not going to eat a burger. But there's lots of other things I can eat. But see, just right there, you had to coach yourself outside of yourself. Yeah. These little things done thousands of times make differences. So here I'm going to close with how to fast. Three very simple pointers that we can incorporate realistically and hopefully we can be resolved to not eat the Babylonian fare around us. How to fast. First, 
Fast simply and realistically. Simply and realistically. I already said this. Don't try to do a whole day without food. I mean, you can. If you're that person, fantastic. But I'm just going to think about how miserable I am all day. Just those little changes is enough. Just little changes. I'm not doing any sugar at all. Or I'm not eating meat or dairy. Or the old school Christians all fasted meat and dairy. They're basically vegans when they fasted. There you go. That's what Daniel did. That's what Daniel did. Um, so do it simply and realistically. Here's a, here's a, here's a principle, a proverb for us. Fast as you can, not as you want. I want to not eat for 40 days like Moses and not die, of course. I want to be that strong, but realistically, I'm not. I can't do that. I can hardly sit down to work on a sermon without a cup of tea next to me. So I have to be realistic. I have to fast as I can, not as I want. Um, the only ineffective fast is the one you don't keep. So if it's as small as I'm not eating sweets today, good. That's better than the fast you don't keep. So one need not abstain from all food. Yeah, I already said that. Um, just limit maybe your types of food or the number of times you eat. That's how you fast simply and realistically. You don't have to go like counting calories and looking at all the ingredients. Just like, I've just cut this off and there we go. Second way to fast, simply and realistically, but second, fast regularly and repetitively. I say this because I get that there's a desire to want to fast when the Lord leads us to. Please do that. But let that be extra. Because here's the truth. Um, we we kind of give repetition a bad rap and we favor spontaneity. But the truth is that Babylon is never spontaneous. Babylon's repetitively after us. Why not fast repetitively? And by repetitively, I mean regularly. I mean choose one day a week or one day a month. But old-fashioned Christians did two days a week. I mean, why can't we just say every Friday, I'm this is my fast. This is the day Christ died for me. I can give something up for that. <laughs> so if you schedule it, it will happen. And then you're building onto those thousand small choices. So then third, also, fast simply, fast realistically, fast regularly, fast repetitively. And third, fast communally and prayerfully. In other words, by communally and prayerfully, you never fast alone. You might be alone that day, but you don't fast alone. Your brothers and sisters are fasting too. Or also, prayerfully, you're with God today when you fast. Instead of gorging myself, I'm pouring myself out to him. Fasting is miserable if you don't coincide it with prayer. In fact, fasting is just a really, it's a health-conscious diet if it doesn't get coupled with prayer. So we never fast alone. Um, Daniel fasted with the three. And you know, I think it would be cool. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But it would be cool if our church just knew it's Friday. I know that Joanna's fasting. I know that because it's Friday. Yeah. And we can support and strengthen each other in that. I'm not a pope. You guys are the masters of our church, so it's in your hands. <laughs> um, okay, so Daniel survived Babylon and witnessed its downfall. We saw that at the end of chapter 1. He saw King Cyrus come. He saw the downfall of Babylon. He survived Babylon. We can too. We can too. But it will take resolve. 